Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. Boy, we got a lot of nice emails. Yes, we did. We are the podcast that translates Donald Trump as if he needed translation. We take a look at the current administration. We address the existential threats to America. Today, we'll hear from Tom Sowell. He's the Rose and Milton Friedman, appropriately enough, Milton Friedman. He's the Rose and Milton Friedman Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's taught economics at Cornell, UCLA, and Amherst. He's the author of a new book, Charter Schools and Their Enemies. Let me talk about a few things first. Let's start with some emails, Claude, because uh, we got a whole bunch of good ones. A couple about the uh, passivity of the American people. Uh, we got Jim Stockman, who wrote and talked about uh, the CT'd off on the Heather McDonald interview and said, Bill mentioned a couple of things that resonated with me, passive receivers of information and generalizing from the particular. He thinks these are modern-day maladies. But he worries about um, people not being able to think for themselves. Right. And interestingly, he cites the KIPP academies, KIPP programs in economically disadvantaged areas in New York, which we're going to talk to Tom Sowell about, actually. He says, in some, it seems as though in part we're now reaping what we have sown in the educational system for many, many years. The public is far too easily manipulated. Manipulators know that and they use that. Uh, The manipulated of them... I'm afraid far too many of them just have no idea. They're pushed around by one set of media uh, personalities or shows or other. We got a similar uh, email from Cullen Coates. Again, Heather Mack and the Culture Wars. Uh, He said, you you mentioned, Bill, in passing that you felt so much of public perception about things such as the prevalence of systematic racism uh, comes from reading or watching media stories. You further noted the fundamental changes in our culture that appear to be driven by media narratives. Uh, Cullen cites the enormous influence the media has uh, and says they're taking sides now clearly against Donald Trump. I don't think it's ever been clearer that a media is on one side. It would be interesting, he says, for you to do some fact-based exploration of the extent of media bias. Uh, I, I can't do that. I mean, that's, that's not what I do. Um, it's been done, and, and, you know, the work of Howard Kurtz, you know, who does that show, Media Buzz, I guess it's called, on Fox, he used to be on CNN. It's clear media bias and clear media bias against uh, against Donald Trump. So, uh, yeah, media bias, no no question about it. Uh, here's uh, from Peter, Peter Lancaster. Bill, I just uh, had to let you know uh, by email how much I enjoyed uh, America, the Last Best Hope. Just finished reading it. I'm a Canadian. Trying to move and live into the U.S., it's harder than you'd think. No, I know, if you want to do it right, <laughs> legally, you know. Reading the book just made me want to live in America even more. I don't think the average American citizen realizes how great the USA is. They should all be proud to live in the best country in the world. Um, Thank you, sir. Uh, This is from Jim Jackson. Uh, This is interesting. Get your comment on this, Claude. Okay. Uh, I enjoy your podcast very much. I'm a small employer, and my experience with my black employees is that any criticism or perceived slight is viewed entirely racially. And that bothers me and it makes me hesitant to hire in the first place. I have a sales organization. Naturally, all sales flow to the company's bottom line. Equality and fairness is important, very important to me. I have different mixes of employees. I have folks with tattoos, piercings. I say the same thing to all. I don't care what you look like, what your politics are, gender. I only care what you do in your job. I can't be the only one who's encountered this. So his point is, Claude, my experience with black employees is when he criticizes People take it racially. I think there's a lot of that. Uh, I don't know how much, uh, if, if there's a lot of it, but I, I will say, uh, you know, just as an African-American, uh, you, from 
my point of view, and maybe they, some African-Americans who work for him or have worked for him feel the same way, there are times where you feel as if you are being criticized and it's specifically uh, not necessarily due to job performance. But I would say that I wouldn't take it personally as they feel this way about you. I think that view comes at your experience uh, or what you have faced in the past. I wouldn't look at it as, a, okay, well, I'm afraid to hire, and I totally get it, but maybe just sit down and speak to some potential employees who are African-American and say, hey, you know, I treat everyone the same. It's all fair here. You know, don't take it this way. I, I think that it's a good place to start the conversation as an employer, as a business owner, um, and maybe not like not hire anyone because of it. I mean, I, cause I, I totally understand it and I get it. I mean, I, I've been passed over for jobs and promotions before and with no reason other than what I would perceive as race-based. And so I kind of understand where, the, where, where they may be coming from, but I also totally get that, you know, one of the worst things you want to be called as a business owner or as a white person is racist when there's no grounds for it. And so I think that's just where this divide is, where good conversation and just, hey, listen, uh, trust me, you know, I'm your guy. I'm for you. Any criticism won't be race based. I think there's there's an opportunity there for conversation and coming together than staying away from it altogether. Well, candor, intelligence and goodwill, Mm -hmm. first of all. Second, you know, I, I think there are people who would interpret it this way sure. for their own reasons. Yeah. Yeah, they're not performing. Oh, you're a racist. You Even know? if there is no reason to take it that way. Right. Yeah. Right. But it's just, it's available and it's in the air. And this is part of what I'm talking about. The more we accentuate differences based on race, the more trouble we're going to have. Okay. This is why a conversation about race that talks about how different we are may be, not be constructive. Mm-hmm. And if you got in the air out there, you know, we're offended, we're discriminated against all the time, all of us, all of us, all of us. It's a systematically racist society. It makes the that answer all the more available. So without denying that it happens in life, it doesn't happen everywhere in life. And not every criticism of every black oh, right. or female exactly. employee. So I think it's, uh, I, I, you make an interesting point. At the beginning of the job, say, this is it. You know, I don't care what color you are, but I'm going to evaluate you on your performance. Yeah. But, is it an extra step that might be unnecessary? Sure, but I think if the point is to is to just have this understanding that hey, anytime that I come at you with the criticism, it's not because of your, the color of your skin. I think it it wouldn't hurt for it to be said, you know, right. um, and maybe even appreciate it from a black employee that you know what I, my, my employer is on is on the level here. I'm, I'm, we're, we're good here. Good. Good, good. And good. I get it. It may feel unnecessary, and why should I have to do this? Um, but I, I think it just depends on what the long game point is. Times in which we live. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand the situation the guy's in. I've heard a lot of people say that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, on the other hand, there are people who hire people who are different race, and they look for reasons to criticize. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think... They're by any ways the majority, but there are such people. And I just wonder whether all this rancor that's out there now helps or not. I don't think it does. Well, I mean, if you, I mean, if you spend, you know, two weeks in a row and you're watching Don Lemon every night and then, you know, your boss reprimands you for something uh, and you say, well, it's racism. It's like, well, no, it's not. I mean, it's, it's this. But oh, fair given enough. what's been feeding you, they may have you thinking that yeah. it's not yeah. merit based when, when sometimes it is. But, you know, you can get it. We can get into the boy who cries wolf, too. Right. And then avoid the real situation of racism. Correct. Correct. People say, oh, another racial complaint. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and get cynical about it. So um, I like your idea of a good candid discussion ahead of time beforehand. 
But I understand the guy's experience. Okay. Oh, 100%. Uh, yeah. Uh, some news items I just picked up on. Um, first of all, calculations. Chicago, 500 black Americans killed in Chicago this year. Yeah, that was another bad weekend, I think, over uh, this past week. 500 yeah. this year. Three police-related. So no matter what you think about the police, it's disproportionate. Black Lives Matter, 497 of them are in the hands of other black people, not cops. Is that an excuse for police brutality or what we saw in Minneapolis? Of course not. But, you know, you got to pay attention to what the big numbers are. Do something about that. Seattle. Uh, looks like they're finally going to dismantle the uh, chop. The- they want to take back the state capitol. <laughs> take it back the to city hall. Yeah, take back the uh, police precinct. Faced with growing pressure to crack down an occupied protest zone, Seattle's mayor said Monday that officials will move to wind down the blocks-long span of city streets taken over two weeks ago that President Trump asserted is run by anarchists. The mayor had said it was just basically a block party and kind of a summer, mm-hmm. beginning of summer thing. Uh, well, there's a lot of block partying. There was a lot of dope smoking. There was a lot of guitar playing and fun and singing. Mm-hmm. And there was also a guy murdered. And another guy sent to the hospital. Thinking of Edmund Burke's line about the um, French Revolution, he said it was a chaos of levity and ferocity. That's kind of what you had in Seattle. Well, we are watching to see what they actually do. Uh, I'll be very interested to see what actually comes out of there. We are still removing statues. I think you actually have to take a quiz before you remove a statue. To see if you actually know. Who is who, this person? Yeah, doesn't matter. Is this, right. And there is what, you know, what smart historians call the era of presentism, which is looking at the past through the present lens. We can all say people who owned slaves, who supported slavery, voted for it, were short-sighted and mistaken. We can also understand that in their time it was a widespread belief. It's also the case that some people who, while holding that, also had other qualities which might be estimable. So was said of Robert E. Lee. You know, he, he was really torn about, you know, what to do. Uh, and, um, you know, as was the case with, with you know, not all, not all these Confederates were Jefferson Davis. So, look, you want to have a debate or discussion about tearing down statues, about taking down statues, have a debate on a public forum. But don't go in there with the ropes. Now it's gotten totally crazy. Ulysses Grant, Lincoln... This guy, Sean King, says we're going after Jesus next in the stained glass windows. Did you see that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, you know, that, and that's interesting because, you know, Jesus, where he was born, would have been a little tan, right? Right, right. I remember we were out screening The Passion of the Christ. You remember that movie? And uh, I was with my son, John, and we saw the screening, and Jim Caviezel plays Christ, plays Jesus. And at the screening, John pointed up what all the people who had screened the movie, made the movie, produced the movie, and, and reviewed the movie missed. He said, this Jesus has blue eyes. Mm-hmm. It's not a chance he had blue eyes. Right. <laughs> right. Not born there to, yeah, man, yeah. to those folks. Right. And that's right. So, uh, you know, we can depict we can depict more accurately. But I'm telling you, if, you know, if somebody starts messing with the crucifixes and the crosses and the stained glass windows, you're going to have a war. Well, you know, there was also a, um, uh, I think, a petition about Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. What are you going to do? You're going to take down the <laughs> take down Washington Monument. <laughs> they own slaves. I mean, Jefferson Memorial. What are we doing here? And now they want to take down the Lincoln and the slave um, in Lafayette Park. This is this is crazy, and it's not serving anybody's cause. There's a story about this ambush of the Tampa police officers. 
Uh, two Tampa police officers were injured after a crowd of hundreds surrounded a group of officers in ambush, Tampa police chief said. They, uh, they were responding to a, a series of uh, reports of shots fired and a possible gunshot victim. So the cops showed up when they got there, a crowd of hundreds. Officers searched for a possible victim, and hundreds of people blocked all four ends of the intersection and became very aggressive. It was an ambush. I have no other way to describe it, the chief said. I saw him interviewed on TV. He said, I don't know what's going to happen, but um, he said, police have always had everyone's back, but nobody has ours. Better be real careful. We talked about this for weeks, the Ferguson effect. Uh, Yeah, and you end up, uh, cops end up being more hesitant to go into, you know, black communities for fear that people will say they're, you know, they're racist and provoke them into situations where, you know, God knows what happens. Look what happened in Atlanta. Speaking of which, somebody, well, somebody not only set fire to the Wendy's, I guess they caught somebody who was doing that. But near the site, they had um, uh, these uh, folks who with long rifles, uh, African-Americans, and when the interviewer said, why, why not the police? He said, we can't trust the police. There's no police here. Why aren't the police here? Police aren't here because we don't want them here. Oh, well, okay, you don't want them here. And uh, so we'll take care of things. Well, again, this is... We give the police and in 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 civil society a monopoly on force and use, use of certain weapons uh, to to enforce the peace. A monopoly, it's dangerous, and I, and and I, and I think and I think that the morale at police departments is very low. Sure, and they're not the recruiting is down sixty percent. They're going to end up with people who are not as well qualified. I've been hitting this point too. As when they lowered class size in California, everybody said this is great, but they had to get more and more teachers. They had to dip further and further down in the qualifications pool. Lots of people are resigning. Lots of people are calling in sick. I have a very close friend in a police organization. He's been running it for years. He says it's never seen the situation so bad. The morale so low. I felt bad for Tim Scott, by the way, Senator Tim Scott. Sure. He had a good bill. He was willing to, you know, horse trade on it. The Democrats, they just shot it down, wanted to say Republicans did nothing. He had serious reform efforts. Democrats didn't agree. All right, sit down and, and compromise, but that wasn't, that wasn't to be. Then this crazy Bubba Wallace thing. Yeah, it's the weird situation. What, 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 is, what's, yeah, what is this? So apparently, uh, right. Matt Carr um, had some uh, reports that there was a noose found in his garage stall, and so there was an FBI investigation. Uh, and and uh, uh, but now it turns out that they said no, he wasn't the target of any kind of hate crime. It was a garage door rope, and it's just weird all the way. And it had been in there months before he went in. Yeah, apparently this is yeah this this is this has been there. This is what you know. This is pretty custom, I guess. Um, right. I mean, I'm not familiar with NASCAR, but this comes days after Bubba Wallace, uh, with all the protest and the George Floyd uh, uh, situation, made a statement. NASCAR gets behind them. Uh, NASCAR says, all right, you know, we don't want the Confederate flags at any of our events on any of the cars. Uh, and, uh, and, then, and, then, and then this happens, and now there's the investigation, so there's, there's nothing there. It just seems really odd to me, um, you know, uh, well, number one, I mean, I'm assuming that they've seen these garage door ropes before. Like, you know, he's not some sort of rookie, and, and, I, and I don't think he was the one who reported it. No, it was NASCAR. Yeah, NASCAR reported it. NASCAR, you know, was the one that made the most noise. Right, It wasn't right, Bob right. Wallace. Yeah. When he was presented with it, he said, oh, man, that's terrible. Right. But he was presented with the argument that this was a noose. Right. His statement, I liked the statement. Uh, Bubba Wallace said, first off, I want to say how relieved I am that the investigation revealed that this wasn't what we feared it was. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a noose. 
Wallace said after NASCAR initially reported a noose was found in the team's garage at the Talladega Super Speedway. I want to thank my team, NASCAR, and the FBI for acting swiftly and treating this as a racial threat. They did. I think we'll gladly take a little embarrassment over what the alternatives could have been. Okay, so he's saying, you know, glad they looked into it, Mm -hmm. but, you know, this wasn't what people think it was. So good for for Bubba there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think NASCAR jumped a little quick, and, of course, once they jumped, the media was all over. Uh, I did, yeah, I should have added this to my earlier comments, but Police Executive Research Forum, PERF, I know them well, surveyed four cities across the country, found crime rates. Indianapolis, Milwaukee, New York, Vegas have spiked. Courts in many places have been closed. Jurisdictions released many offenders in order to reduce the spread of COVID, remember? Mm-hmm. And this has led to a feeling among offenders they can commit crimes with impunity. Uh, Perf Police Executive Research Forum also explained that officers who would be assigned to investigate and track violent crimes have instead been assigned to monitor the protests. New York uh, Chief of Department Terrence Monahan told Perf. In the last week, we've had 53 shooting incidents and 72 people shot. We have to go way back to 2012 for a week like that. Um, same in these other cities. Homicides are way up. Milwaukee, Las Vegas, etc. For Ferguson effect again, maybe. Sure. And this terrible coincidence with COVID. Everybody wearing masks. You know, <laughs> these guys released from prison. So it's a it's it's a mess. We've got COVID. We've got the horrible, egregious incident on you know, on tape, on, on camera from Minneapolis. We have the much more ambiguous Rayshard Brooks thing from Atlanta. We have these statues being taken down. We have these calls about systemic racism. We have an election. Have an election. We've got the, 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 the guys on trial for chasing down Ahmaud Arbery there in yep. Georgia. Yep. There's so much happening. But it's interesting. I do think, you know, the president's commented on it and, and, and talked about it a lot. Biden has not said so much. He's just sort of said some banalities, you know, some kind of nice things and general things. But he needs to talk about specifics of Seattle or Atlanta or whatever. We can all agree in Minneapolis. That's not controversial. But what about these more difficult cases? Again, I I think, what's the guy's name? Filonis, Mm -hmm. brother of uh, of George Floyd, Filonis Floyd, said, hey, the Atlanta situation is very different from the Minneapolis situation. Don't confuse them. And he said, but in both cases, even in my brother's case, don't use this as an excuse for tearing down buildings or lighting fires. Right. If we see more torn down buildings, statues, lighting fires, you know, uh, bricks thrown at police, it's going to cut the other way. Mm-hmm. It's not going to help the national conversation. Not at all. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. All right, let's welcome Tom Soule to the show. He's the Rose and Milton Friedman Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. He's the author of the new book, Charter Schools and Their Enemies. So, uh, Tom Soule, what a delight. Uh, he's been talking about this and writing about this stuff. Uh, I don't want to say before I was born, but almost. <laughs> That's, I don't want to be unkind to you here, Tom, but I, you've been oh, at this Oh, my long. goodness. The, the people who say, you know, I still remember when I was a student and you said, <laughs> yeah. read you. Yeah, yeah, no, my, yeah, no, people say to me now, do you have my, uh, my grandfather said you taught him in your class. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Charter schools and their enemies. Let me let me just uh, give you a little intro on this. This is the new book by Tom Sowell. Uh, I was saying the other night on TV, I was saying I know all this stuff about Black Lives Matter and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I said, but the minds of black children matter, too. The minds of all children matter. And I'm, I'm as worried about school not opening and 
bad schools reopening and not teaching anybody anything. As they have about anything else in terms of uh, afflictions in the community, inner city communities, minority communities, that's as serious as anything, Tom, isn't it? It, it is. I am uh, enormously uh, disappointed by what happened in California last year because they put in sweeping anti-charter school reform, which, among other things, will force charter schools to uh, teach courses designed by others on such subjects as sex and race, whether the charter schools want to or not. Yeah. More importantly, they have put in, made it virtually impossible to suspend the student uh, for disrupting the, the, uh, the, the classroom. I call it uh, a t- tenure for troublemakers. Yeah. And, and, and it serves no other educational purpose than to make it harder for charter schools to maintain the levels of, of education that they have. And, and therefore, it, it will reduce the attraction of school of students out of the regular public schools and into the charter schools. Let's uh, let's clarify for the audience: Are charter schools public schools? Some are, and some aren't. The vast majority are. Yeah. They're public. They're public schools. They're they're financed by the taxpayers. By gr- they're set up by private groups uh, that meet whatever standards the accrediting agencies require. And if they don't meet the standards, they can be simply cut off. Uh, they're unlike pu- the traditional public schools in one important way as well, and that is that uh, traditional public schools get students by compulsory penance laws. Charter schools get only such students as choose to apply. The record of charter schools, as I looked at it, is mixed, correct? I mean, there are some great charters, some good oh, charters, yeah. some mediocre charters, and some charters that aren't any, any better than, than, than the worst of our schools. Although uh, there and there are also a category of very disappointing charter schools, which are nevertheless better than the, than the local uh, public yes. schools. Yes, yes, but I mean I, they should be evaluated on the same basis, isn't that right? Absolutely, and absolutely, sh- and should be assessed. They should be accountable. It's public funds and so on, right? So accountability should be the same. It, it should be. Uh, it should be uh, at the same level. I mean, accountability is one of the many treacherous words they use. The question is accountable to whom and for what. Uh, they are already accountable for the for the for the results, which which are tested say, in places like New York and most other places annually. And so, there's no mystery as to how the schools are doing educationally. That's the kind of accountability I like, and you have that throughout your book. One of the great things in your book is these lists of schools and their scores. That's One that. of the things they're doing in California wants accountability in the sense of publicizing the names and addresses of people who not only who teach and manage these schools, but also those who are donors and members of the boards of governors and so forth. And what that does is repeat a process that was tried many years ago in the South during the civil rights thing of forcing the NAACP to publicize the names of its members and donors and so forth. And all that that does is use the law to facilitate reprisals outside the law. It has no educational benefit. Gotcha. But uh, taking these schools and publishing the results, uh, the test score results, is perfectly fine, right? It's just crucial. Crucial, yeah. I had, when I was Secretary of Education, Tom, I had uh, something called the, uh, was the performance chart. And... uh, it was we evaluated the states, we evaluated schools, we evaluated public versus private, had the wall chart we called it, and 
I remember after a year or two, the guardians of the public school establishment, the unions and others said, no, no more wall chart, no more wall chart. But that's the kind of accountability. Tell us about the most successful charter schools that you've seen, witnessed, visited, read about. Oh, oh heavens. Uh, the, 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 the crucial one is the uh, Success Academy Charter oh. Schools in New York. Yeah. Uh, they have, uh, on, on, on the mathematics uh, test that the state, the New York State gives every year, on, in the year that I did my, my sample of, uh, uh, every single class in every one of 13 buildings that I looked at in New York City had a majority of its students scoring not at the proficient level, but at the level above proficient. Uh, when it came to, uh, school, Students who scored down at the bottom in what they call level one, way two levels below proficient. Uh, uh, virtually all of these same schools had all their classes uh, having zero, no, had all but four of their classes having zero percent of students in, in level one. Uh, and the four classes where there were students there, the highest percentage of who were, who were down in level one was three percent in one school in one building. Yeah, and I was talking last week on this podcast about a third of the schools in Baltimore had no students proficient, none. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. There, and there's the difference. Success academies are public schools. These schools oh, in yeah. Baltimore are public schools. Virtually the same student body, or what about the argument that this is creaming, that the parents who care enough to send their kids to the success academies are already... Ah, yeah, yes. <laughs> It sounds so plausible on the surface. Yeah. But, the, but don't, don't forget the, the admissions to the charter school is by lottery. As in all lotteries, a few win and the great majority lose. Yep. And therefore, the charter schools take a fraction of these motivated students and parents that they talk about and leave the vast majority of them in the public schools. And so the fact that the charter schools uh, are able to educate this fraction of students who are no different academically from the others. They're the one, there's purely a matter of luck who wins the, the uh, lottery. Uh, does not in the slightest prevent the public school from educating the vast majority who remain in the public school. Yeah. But they don't do it. Uh, and, and in fact, there have been follow-up studies of, of students who applied for the charter schools, didn't get in to see how, how, how do they fare then in the uh, traditional public schools. And the answer is they don't fare nearly as well. Their behavior is not nearly as good. The girls who are in this group who, get, who, go, who are forced to go back to the public schools have a higher rate of pregnancy than the girls who go into the charter schools. Yeah. The boys who go back into the public, traditional public schools uh, have a higher rate of incarceration than the boys who get into the charter schools. Yeah. So the schools make a difference, obviously. Oh, difference. absolutely. No question. Is it Eva Moskowitz? Is that who we associate mainly with? Yes, yeah, she was. She was the founder and uh, current and uh, CEO of uh, the Success Academy Charter Schools. Right. We're, we're talking to Tom Soule, uh, his new book, Charter Schools and Their Enemies. It's fascinating. Okay, why can't we do this everywhere? If they can do it there and they can do it with these kids who are not of privileged backgrounds, who they're not creaming, as you point out, from the lottery, why can't we do it everywhere? We can't do it because the schools have different incentives uh, and different kinds of accountability. The accountability in the, in the public schools, traditional public schools, uh, is accountability for following orders and innumerable rules and regulations, including rules and regulations that make it almost impossible to fire an incompetent teacher. Yeah. So, so there are different kinds of accountability. What about? Moreover, the, the, the people who control the system 
uh, do their best to make sure that even though children have the right to transfer into charter schools, they create as many impediments as they can. One of those, one of the, one of the biggest impediments is not allowing charter schools to have enough classrooms to handle them. Right. Obviously very, very different. But, uh, you know, I remember uh, when I went out to uh, Jaime Escalante School uh, in, oh, yeah. in, in Los Angeles and you know, I, I said, well, here are these kids studying calculus and they're getting advanced placement. And, you know, if he can do it here, you know, maybe we can do it. Maybe we can do it everywhere. And I talked to the principal and she said, why aren't all my teachers being celebrated? And I said, because they're not all getting the results that Escalante's getting. Yeah, she said, why is everybody making such a big fuss about him? I said, because he's getting results. He's, his kids are getting advanced wow. placement, going to MIT. And this mindset of, well, the collective, you know, but what about the rest of them? And, and you know, and, and when Jaime Escalante was finally fired, I don't know if you remember this, Garfield High School, East L.A., they fired him no. because because he had too many students in his classroom. Oh. And when I asked him, I said, how come you had too many students in your classroom? He said, nobody else knew how to teach calculus. <laughs> Talk about the wrong incentives. So what do we do, Tom? How do we how do we advocate for more successful charter schools, particularly for kids who need it the most? I guess the main thing is to try to make sure that the charter schools are, in fact, treated equally with the traditional schools. I mentioned the, the big uh, bottleneck is classes. In, in New York City, there are more than 50,000 students on waiting lists yeah. to get into charter schools. Yeah. And yet the law will not permit any more charter schools to be uh, created, uh, and they and they uh, block them from getting uh, space in, in, in half-empty public schools, and they block, block them from acquiring uh, vacant schools and cities across the country. So that's one thing. The other thing is not they're, they're, they're always complaining about how the charter schools are drawing money from out of the public school system. No, they can't draw anything. If the students choose to leave the public school system, then, of course, money has to leave with them. Yeah. I, I find it, but this, this yeah. argument that is yeah, too so much, it's maddening. Yeah, no, they're in public schools. They take the money with them. Yeah. People. The other thing is, they don't, the charter school students do not get as much money per pupil uh, right. as traditional public schools get. What's the difference, for example, in New York? Do you know offhand? No, I, I've seen one, I've seen two studies probably done at different a, a, uh, a time. One study said that they get nineteen percent less. The other said they get something like twenty five percent less. Wow! So it's those are big. Uh, it's not. It's not a small amount, right? And yet the complaint is always that they, that they are drawing money out of out of the public schools. Yeah, it's as if when the students leave school A to go to school B, the money should stay back at school A. Yeah, I know. Now they will never make that explicit argument, but that's implicit in what they're saying. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. I've been through these arguments. Tell us huh. about some of the fights that uh, Eva Moskowitz has had with uh, Mayor De Blasio. Oh my goodness! Well, but before he was ever his first campaign for mayor, he denounced her by name, and he said that she was not uh, she was not entitled to have free free rent. And of course, it was not she who has free rent; it's the children who have classrooms who need classrooms, uh, and who uh, De Blasio tried his best to stop them getting. He had a plan to uh, charge schools, uh, charter schools. Money for use of the classroom, empty and empty, empty classrooms in public schools. Uh, and fortunately, uh, even Moskowitz, who was polit- politically savvy among other things, organized a uh, group of seventeen thousand people 
for a for a symbolic march across the Brooklyn Bridge, carrying signs saying, uh, "Let my children learn." Yeah, and reminiscent reminiscent of "Let my people go." You bet. Uh, and 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 then then she took an, another group of ten thousand up to Albany to get the state legislature to to stop Mayor De Blasio from trying to charge them uh, money, and she succeeded in this. Uh, but the fight goes on, and um, most recently, uh, last year, the, the federal government uh, granted her something like $9 million, for, and she, which she could obviously use to expand the Success Academy charter schools. Well, she can't because they won't let her have uh, places to put the kids. So the Blasio, I mean, it's not this uh, benighted liberal who means to do the right thing, and he's just making a mistake here. Uh he, he's trying to undo these schools, isn't he? Oh, he, he says so himself. He, in a speech to the National Education Association, he was saying, you know, he's against these uh, these schools, that there shouldn't be charter schools and so on. And I'm sure that may have uh, helped him with the National Education Association, but it doesn't help those, those, those students. For whom education is really, for most of them, their one best yeah. shot for a decent one life shot. they grow up. Absolutely. I mean, let's just put it plainly. Here are these kids, many of them minority, poor families, poor backgrounds. This is their best shot, and he's doing everything in his power to deny that to them. It's really, yes. it's really unconscionable. It really is. And and behind all of this, of course, are the teachers' unions. Because if those fifty thousand uh, uh, kids on the waiting list in New York got into charter schools, if they're trying to. And New York is paying uh, upwards of $20,000 a year per student. That would mean every year a transfer of more than $1 billion from the traditional public schools into the charter schools. And, of course, neither the teachers' union nor the people in, in the traditional charter schools want any such thing to happen. We're talking to Tom Sowell, charter schools and their enemies. Should this be part – I'm going to make transition, Tom, if it's all right with you. Should this mm-hmm. be part of the so-called national conversation on race? Well, there is no national conversation on race. There is a loud monologue on race by people who know how to use rhetoric and intimidation. Whenever people call for a a dialogue on race, almost invariably, that's what they really mean. I know that's what Eric Holder meant. I mean, you know. What Bill Clinton meant when he was president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but, I mean, if you're going to talk about the future of African-American children, it's what we've just been talking about, isn't it? It's not so yes. much about cops; it's about opportunity. Oh yes, my gosh! I mean, uh, it, 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 the, the fraudulence of so much that is being said is staggering, and especially since much of that fraudulence comes out of the educational system, uh, from the, not only from the schools but to the leading colleges and universities in the country. Too much, too many schools, educational institutions have turned themselves into propaganda centers. Tell me about about the charges now from uh, some in the in the African American community about the police and the effect this has on on those communities as well as the country. Well, it's, it's been, we've been through this um, kind of process before, the, the riots and so forth. Uh, what typically happens is that uh, they blame the police, uh, not simply for the things that some policemen actually do, uh, which is undeniable in a, in a country this size with as many police as we have. Somebody's going to do something wrong. Uh, but what they're trying to do is turn 
really bad things done by a particular policeman here or there into an indictment of the entire police system. And even in many places, especially out here, talking about the idea of getting rid of police force, that is, I've often thought that, uh, that, you know, the stupid people can, uh, can create problems, but it usually takes brilliant people to create a real catastrophe. And this is going to be a real catastrophe if they manage to do that. Yeah, uh, the Ferguson effect. Um, you know that people will stop. Cops will stop going into these communities. I mean, the community's most hurt when the police are trashed, and if not had bricks thrown at them or shot at, uh, are the people in the community themselves. In my experience, and I've spent a lot of time in inner city. I grew up in Brooklyn. I, this secretary of education. I think you know. I went to a lot of inner city schools, but I was drug czar and went to a lot of housing projects, other places. Most of the black community that I came in contact with was pro-police. They wanted yeah. more law enforcement, not less. They certainly didn't want police brutality, obviously. But yeah. I remember going uh, in Boston, uh, and I was accompanied by Dukakis and Kennedy. And, and you know, we, we went to the community, and, and, and everywhere I went, I heard, can't you get these guys off the street, Mr. Drugs are? Can't you, you know, keep them locked up? So we can yeah. go outside. So, you know, that's what I heard all day. And then I went to Harvard that night, gave a talk, and all the questions were about legalizing drugs. You know, totally, oh, yeah. totally missing, totally missing the point. But uh, but when we have this kind of antagonism against the police generally, uh, it's going to hurt those communities the most, isn't it? Well, the record says yes. I mean, it's not. You know, one of the few advantages of being ninety years old is that you've seen all these things done again and again and again over a period of more than half a century. And then when you, when you, when you, uh, when the politicians are ready to throw the police to the wolves, whenever some loudmouth sounds off against them, uh, police pull back. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they don't go as all out as they, as they, as they would because they know there's nobody out there that has their back. The slightest thing can get them fired if not prosecuted. Now, the things that in this case, uh, this, the killing of this man in Minneapolis, I don't know of any event that has been so unanimously condemned. Yeah. In other words, to have have a, a riot over a fact over a non-existent dispute. Right. Every, well, one of the most conservative uh, commentators I've heard on the radio, you know, was 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 absolutely beside himself against this man having been killed this way. So there's there's nobody that I've heard who has even talked about any mitigating reason why why this cop should have done this. So there's no, basically no dispute uh, going. And somehow the big thing is to say that all cops or most cops are like this guy in Minneapolis, which doesn't sound very plausible. It's interesting you use the phrase, have your back. Uh, I was just reading from Tampa, which apparently there was some kind of ambush of cops. And the chief said, you know, we're there to protect people's back, but who's got ours now? And Nobody. It's not, uh, It's well, the president, I think, he has to get some credit. Yeah. He, he has stood up for the cops. But, you know, where are these mayors? Where are these governors? What about this idiocy in Seattle? You know, this uh, You know this business about it's just a block party. Block party where people get killed and, the, and they won't let the police in. Oh, yes. I mean, this is, and I, you know, you, but this, is, this is the history of politicians, and especially during an election year. And, and it's, it's what I call preemptive surrender. Yeah. And I, I think that's a technique yeah. that was perfected on the academic world starting in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. And, and, and you know, and I, again, I just worry, you know, what communities could be hurt the most. We're seeing now, Tom, that a lot of police are resigning. 
Yeah, uh, recruiting, I don't blame them. recruiting is way down. And I, the analogy I use, I always go back to education. When everybody celebrated California reducing class size, I said that just means they're going to dig deeper into the teacher qualification pool. Absolutely. You know, and get, get people who are less and less qualified. They got a 60% reduction here in police recruiting. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't surprise me in, 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 the, in the slightest because this kind of stuff it will not get you better policemen. It's going to force you to have to dig deeper into a smaller pool of police applicants and, and, to, tol- and, to, and to lower your standards if you want to fill the job. Yeah. So if you, want, if you want better policemen, this is the opposite of the way to, go, to get them. What about the whole statue business, Confederacy, now extending beyond the Confederate generals, the Union generals, to, to the, the secular saint of America, Abraham Lincoln? What the heck? What is going on here? What is going on is that, like many movements, they need uh, victories. Uh, and if the uh, people who are who are supposedly responsible officials just stand by and twiddle their thumbs while they do it, uh, they want there's no logical stopping place. I mean, it, I, there's no reason why they won't end up, uh, uh, you know, tearing down the Statue of Liberty. So it's 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 it's, it's a question of whether you will or will not enforce the law. Some people seem to think of anarchy as just a, a further expansion of freedom, when in fact it's a a, 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 a strict a restriction of freedom to people who are the most ruthless. When I uh, was confirmed uh, by the Senate, uh, I was introduced twice by. So I grew up in New York, but New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you know, you know, oh, yeah. you know him. He said, um, culture is more important than politics. Politics is downstream from culture. Uh, he also said politics can affect culture, but culture is really in, in charge. I've, I've always believed that. And someone said the other day, I'd like to get your comment on this, that we used to say, well, they can enjoy these goofy ideas while they're in college, but then they'll get out and they'll get in the real world and they'll they'll learn something different. and person pointed out we now have the campusification of the quote real world that is the lessons yeah. being taught in the academy are now being extended into uh, public debate uh and the things the craziness the zaniness i call it of you know what's taught on a lot of campuses is now part of national conversation and and not enough people are speaking out against it that's true and the other thing too is that although all of this is happening in the name of race the very same phenomenon occurs on the other side of the Atlantic in England, where the underclass is predominantly white. So years before there were these riots in Ferguson and Baltimore, the very same kinds of riots were taking place in London, Manchester, and other big British cities, in which mobs, in this case white mobs primarily, were out uh, setting fire to businesses, throwing uh, gasoline bombs at police cars and doing all the same things that would later be done in Ferguson and Baltimore and so on. And I, I see it as uh, the, the product of a school system, which over there, probably longer than over here, yeah. has been telling people that if you don't have what other people have, it's because people have done you in. They've committed an injustice against you. In this case, it's not race that they claim, it's class. But whatever the reason... You create a whole bunch of people, especially young people who haven't been in the world enough to know any better in many cases, uh, who believe that and who go out into the world, you know, lacking in basic skills, but uh, well supplied with resentments and rhetoric. And that is not that is a bad formula on both sides of the Atlantic and regardless of the color of people's skin. One of the ironies is one of the studies of functional illiteracy found the exact same 
level of functional literacy in both countries. Interesting. At 16.6%. And here, there's no, there's no racial thing, there's no history of slavery and so forth, but you get the exact same end result by, by, by the very same kinds of uh, ideological indoctrination in the schools. How will this work out? Are, are you worried about America? I am. I, 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 you know, we, we've overcome a lot of problems uh, over the years, but there is a point of no return. And I think the history, you know, the, the Roman Empire did eventually decline and fall. And it was, a, it was a tragedy of the first magnitude. It was centuries, some say a thousand years before the standard of living in Europe rose again to where it had been in the days of the Roman Empire. Uh, I'm, and of course, you never uh, got that large a, a united country in Europe again. And I suspect that if, if, if they destroy this country, uh, yeah. it, it may never come back again. What's the antidote? Um, Pericles says the secret of democracy is courage. Yes, well, uh, the, the, <laughs> many people are keeping their courage secret. Yeah, I want to keep you a courage secret. Keep it in a well, well hidden place. And we worse off than we were in '68. You, you brought attention to the fact that you were 90. I wasn't going to bring that up, but you did because it's <laughs> it's impressive as hell. God, you are really good and sharp as you've ever been. Maybe sharper, and I guess you know more, right? You live longer, you know more. Is that right? That, that's right, and uh, and you learn to regret more. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> you forget more too. I'm forgetting more. No, 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 re- no. Regret more. I got you. No, I'm forgetting more. I, regretting. Yeah, I guess I'm getting to regretting, but I'm forgetting. That's anyway. No, it, it is. It is. It is it, there, there is no guarantee that, that we're going to pull out of this one. Is it worse than '68? And as horrible as the year, horrible year, 1968. Yes, yes. I must tell you that I got my PhD in 1968, and I was bitter because I said, you know, all the years I have put into getting this degree, and now I was ready to head back, back to private industry. I gave it a few more tries, but uh, when I got the offer to come to the Hoover Institution and, and have no t- no teaching or other campus responsibilities, I figured that this is this is the way to go, and uh, that that that's worked out well, very well for me. Uh, well, it certainly has. It's worked out well for the rest of us. You are a, a national resource and a national treasure. And we thank you very much, Tom Soul. Well, thank you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. That does it for today's show. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and 